Amen. 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 Good morning. Um, <laughs> as I, I pretty much tell you every week now, it's, it's interesting looking out and, and uh, seeing only one or two faces uh, here in the building, but knowing that others are, are uh, still connected and still hearing the word, uh, still encouraged. Uh, the, the one person in the sanctuary today, I'm going to ask, I need you to move around to different spots <laughs> so I can be preaching in different directions. But uh, anyhow, it's been, a, it's been a really great week um, for me, hopefully for many of you, uh, the same, you know, uh, coming off of last Sunday's message on Tuesday night, we had our uh, couples connect on, uh, on Tuesday night on Zoom, and we got to go through some, some activities and some learning and some praying together, and that was uh, really encouraging to see the, the couples, the, the marriages, uh, that wanted to reach out and wanted to be a part of that and uh, connect that way. And then again, for me personally, uh, connected with some of the men from the church. We had a time of prayer and a time of fasting this week that uh, just produced a, a lot of fruit for, um, for, for each of us, but also I think just overall for the church that needs uh, men to be doing those types of things right now, uh, spiritually seeking the Lord and asking for uh, direction, asking for guidance. So I'm looking forward to, to this week, looking forward to, to the message today, but also, as uh, Mary mentioned, just the women being able to get together and uh, continuing to connect and uh, strengthen relationships. One of the things that I've found is that, you know, when we're able to gather, when we're able to, to uh, hang out together and, and uh, spend time together, that a lot of times we don't really get into, uh, you know, the depth of conversation that I'm finding we're able to do when we're connecting online and in uh, these Zoom-type meetings and over the phone um, because we're actually talking about things that matter, right? And we know that the point of connecting is to talk about things that matter. So I appreciate the depth. Uh, of some of the relationships and some of the conversations that's coming out of this time. So welcome to week number three of our series, uh, Things We Lost in the Fire. Uh, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3. Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. We've been talking about things we've lost in the fire in this sense that there is heat, there is this purging, there is this refining that's taking place. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So this series is taking this current fire of the coronavirus, and we're trying to see what it is that God might be doing in the church, right? Trying to understand this refining, right? This testing of our hearts, right? This work that God is doing uh, that we believe that he's going to bring to completion. So how is the Lord doing that in this time, right? I think that this series is about the church as a whole, but it's also about every individual believer going through this, right? Going through this purging, going through this fire, going through this refining time. Uh, I think it's also about the young people in the church as much as it's about the older folks in the church. Our, our youth met on Friday night, and then I had one of them give me a call afterwards, and we're so excited about the things that they learned and the time that they got to engage, right? And then we have the same thing going on where we're getting messages from all types of people in the church that are going through this season and growing through this season, right? The Lord's testing hearts. He's testing the young. He's testing the old. 
He's testing the congregation as a whole. He's testing the leaders and leadership, right? But why? Right? I don't believe that it's for condemnation, but for identification, right? The Lord isn't trying to condemn us for the areas that we fall short in. The Lord is trying to identify where we are exactly so that we can be on the track to get where it is that he's trying to take us. The scriptures tell us that Satan is the one that tempts, but the Lord is the one that tests, right? The enemy desires to come in to condemn us, to demoralize us. He tempts us, and then he watches us as we fall, sometimes into sin, uh, that he would be able to condemn us, right? But the Lord isn't that way. He tests us again to show us where we are, and then that the work that he's already done, right? So he can prove, look, this is where you are right now. You have not arrived. However, you're not where you began either, right? The only way that he can do that is by testing us to show us. He already knows, but he's trying to show us exactly where we are, right? So when the manufacturer makes a product, they test it to show uh, not how weak it is, right? But how strong and how capable that product is. If they're making light bulbs, what are they going to say? They're going to test it. They're going to leave the thing on and they're going to say, this thing is going to last you for a year. This light bulb is going to last you for two years. They have to test it to show what it's capable of. If a manufacturer is manufacturing tires for a vehicle, they've got to test that to be able to say, this tire will last you 30,000 miles. They're not testing it to say that it's weak. They're testing it to show you exactly how strong it actually is, right? So during these fiery months of the coronavirus, I can tell you that I've been tempted by the enemy. Um, there's been several times where I feel like I've fallen into his traps. But more often, I feel like I've been able to recognize when the Lord is testing. And I'm grateful to see that he's still working on me, right? Again, when the Lord is revealing certain things, it's not that we've arrived. It's not that we're so strong. It's just that, hey, I know that I'm further along than where I began, right? So we can live without going out every week. Some of the things that we've realized, right? Um, when it comes to our strength, we realize that we can live without going out every week. We can live on limited budgets. We can live under authority and strict laws, right? All of a sudden they're telling us where we can go, when we, where we can't go, what we have to wear if we want to go into a store. We're learning that we're capable of doing many of these things. We've learned that we're able to alter our lives uh, based on the advice of experts, right? We tune in, we turn on, and we, and we listen to our doctors, we listen to our health professionals and our experts, and we're able to alter the way that we live, what we touch and don't touch, where we go and where we don't go, what we eat and what we don't eat, right? What we expose ourselves to, and what we don't expose ourselves to. I think what we're learning is that in many ways, we are more capable than maybe we thought we were, right? So here's what this series is hopefully trying to accomplish is taking that next step and saying, Lord, I wonder what might happen if we go all in in some of these areas that we've been reluctant, right? We've been in fear. We've been withholding. We've been worried, right? I wonder what would happen if we go all in and say, Lord, how about if we just allow these areas to be fully purged, to be fully burned in this fire, right? And then retain or keep or come out of the fire with these principles after the fire um, that do the same thing trust the authority and trust the expertise of god right 
So we didn't think we were capable of listening to authority and expertise. We didn't think we were capable of living a certain type of lifestyle. We didn't think that we could change so quickly, but we're seeing that in the physical, we're capable of doing these things. And I feel like the Lord is saying, you're also capable of doing these things with me. If you let this not be a temporary thing just for this season of the coronavirus, and you let these be principles that you begin to live underneath when it comes to your relationship with me, uh, I think we'll see some wonderful things. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to be in your house. We thank you for another opportunity to be hearing your word. We thank you for another opportunity, Lord, for you to continue the ongoing work, Lord. You are faithful. You've begun this work in each and every one of our lives. We believe and we trust you that you are going to bring this work to completion. Our hope this morning, Lord, is that we would be able to endure the heat, that we would stay in this fire, Lord, trusting that you are doing a purging and a purification of our lives for our sake, for the sake of our loved ones, for many of us, for the sake of our marriages and for the sake of our children, our families, Lord God. We just ask that you would help us to trust you, Lord God. We ask that you would help us to make these things not temporary, but enduring, Lord. That we would see you as the one who is testing us to show us how far we've come, that we would trust you to keep us going further, Lord God. That we would be able to identify when it is the enemy who is tempting us, Lord God, that we would not fall into his traps, Lord. So just have your way, Lord. We're gathered with you. We're gathered in your name. We believe that you are there in the midst with us here in this place, Lord, and in every single home, Lord. Every ear that is listening, Lord, every eye that is watching, Lord, that you're here with us, Lord, and that you have an intended goal, that your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So things we lost in the fire. Week three. So far, what we've looked at is losing dependence on the church through this fire, right? Many of us would come to church and that was our weekly duty. We loved it. We were encouraged by it. We were strengthened by it. But many of us are finding that we were dependent upon it, dependent upon the gathering, dependent upon the worship setting, dependent upon uh, hearing the word preached to us and being in a community of people where there was a sense of accountability and encouragement, right? All those things are good things, but if that is the heart and the foundation of your faith, rather than Christ himself, we're finding that uh, much of that is being burned up in this fire, right? So we want to lose that dependency, <coughs> excuse me, on church as we may know it. In week one, we also looked at gaining a value for the Sabbath, right? So switching that from this dependency on the buildings and the gathering and the atmosphere and to Sabbathing, which is actually the, uh, uh, the invitation for the Holy Spirit to come. And that can happen every day of the week. That's happening now in our homes and not in our church buildings. That's happening where, where men are leading Bible studies in their homes, right? And women are leading prayer meetings in their home. And children are studying amongst themselves, we're seeing that we are Sabbathing with God. We are resting in the Lord. We are inviting his presence into our home. That's something that we're hoping we gain or we take out of this fire with us. In week two, last week, we looked at losing our faith substitutes in this fire, right? We talked about how uh, when we first get saved, a lot of things are just destroyed and demolished and they're removed from our lives. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves picking up some of those pieces and rebuilding those things that we left behind. And what we end up with is, faith substitutes instead of faith. When we once trusted everything to Christ, we're taking some of that trust back and taking some of that uh, authority back unto ourselves, right? 
And instead of faith, we have this faith substitute. It looks like faith. It tastes like faith. It smells like faith, but it ain't faith. Right. So we want that to be burned up in this fire. Anything that we've rebuilt, we're hoping that uh, God would destroy it once again as we go through this time of this virus and this fire here. And then what do we look at gaining last week? We looked at gaining a love for and a dependency upon the gospel. Right. So, again, that idea of not the idea of church, but this uh, truth of the gospel. Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? What is God's plan? How has that affected my life? How has that affected your life? How do we tell that story to those that we care for, that we love, that we work with, right? that we spend our time with? When we're able to gather again, what story are we going to be telling? And we're praying that it's a story of the gospel, that as we come out of this fire, we have this newfound um, faith, this newfound hope, this newfound uh, desire to share the gospel and to receive it for ourselves as our, as our core. And then the last thing that we looked at gaining last week was the joy and the adventure that was always intended to come with following Jesus, right? We talked about how Nathaniel, when he came to Jesus, Jesus said, look, uh, an Israelite in whom there was no guile. And he said, well, how did you, how do you know me? And he says, I saw you under the tree. And then Nathaniel says, well, I'm going to follow you. You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, hey, that's amazing. I do know you and I do see you. However, you're going to see greater things than this as you walk with me and as you follow me. There is joy. There is adventure. There is change. There is transformation. And many of us have been lacking in those areas, we think, right? We've, uh, we've lost that. Uh, our hope is coming out of this fire, we get back to some of that, that joy, that excitement, that adventure. Right? So if we're able to do that, we can say that the fire of this coronavirus will go down in many ways like the fire of the crucifixion of Christ. Right? It's a terrible moment. It's uh, clouded by and shrouded in death and destruction. However, the end of the story is ultimately about hope and about resurrection, and about life, and about destiny. So uh, we know that with this particular fire, this coronavirus, we're seeing a lot of negativity, we're seeing a lot of death, and we're seeing a lot of suffering. However, we're also, I believe, capable of seeing life and hope, change, transformation, destiny, uh, things being purged and left behind, and things being gained and taken forward, right? So that's what we've seen so far today. I want to look at something I think hopefully it will be very simple for us. I want to look at losing assimilation in this fire, and I want to look at gaining real hope and reality as we come out of this fire. So we're going to lose assimilation, and we're going to gain real hope and gain a sense of reality. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to read through. Daniel 1.1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure, into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Asphanaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom were, there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision 
of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. What a story, right? Say true story. <laughs> true story. So let's focus on verse 8. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. So you've got these young men who have been brought into this kingdom, and they're supposed to be eating a certain kind of food now, and they're supposed to be drinking wine, they're supposed to have these delicacies and the best of the best that this kingdom has to offer. See, fire is coming, right? And it's going to turn out to be either a tempting fire or a testing fire, and we get to decide which one it's going to be. Question is, do we get out? Do we want to get out of the fire by any means necessary? Right? If we do, we can just jump out. Jump out of the fire and right into assimilation. Right? Here's Daniel. Here's his, his three uh, counterparts. They find themselves in this fire where they're asked to live a certain way to do certain things, that's called assimilation. They're asked to be like everybody else in that kingdom. And they have this opportunity because it's hot, the fire is there, they're being told what to do. They can either jump out of that fire and assimilate, or they can make another decision, right? See, if we're willing to endure the heat, what ends up happening is we get purged, we get purified, right? We refuse to take the easy way out right? Assimilation is the easy way out, right? But what do we have to do? 
We have to purpose in our hearts to stay in the fire like Daniel did. It's not an easy thing to do. One of the reasons that I think we often assimilate is because we can't always see the consequences of assimilation from where we stand. When we're just asked, we want you to eat this, we want you to drink that, we don't think about the consequences. Those consequences may be weeks or months or a lot of times even years down the road. It's very difficult for us to see that, so it's just easier to say, why fight? Why deal with fire? Why deal with judgment? Why deal with potential pain? Let's just get out of this fire. Let's assimilate. I forget when it was, but I preached a message titled out of the fire or excuse me, out of the frying pan and into the fire, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And the idea was that when we're tested by God and at the same time, we're tempted by the enemy, right? We are tempted to jump out of that, fi- that uh, frying pan because it's hot. We feel the heat. <laughs> we don't want to deal with it. So we jump out of that frying pan. But those of us who have spent any time with the enemy, what we realize is you jump out of the frying pan and you find yourself in the fire. Things don't get better. They get worse. All we've done is postpone, at best, the destruction that was already coming. And we've increased the reach, right? How much destruction? Is it just going to be my destruction, right, when I jump out of that frying pan? Or is it going to be the destruction of my marriage, right? Or is it possibly now going to be the destruction of my family and then the destruction of the ministry? And it goes on and on. We think that we're just assimilating or we're just getting out of the heat for a moment, but it always gets worse with the enemy, right? He's yelling at us. Take the easy way out. Everyone's doing it. It's not that big of a deal. Just eat what we're eating. Drink what we're drinking. It's actually a blessing that you get to eat this and drink this. Tells us, don't put yourself through this. I think about this all the time in the church, the things that God is asking me to do, or the things that God is asking you to do. From the outside looking in, people are like, why are you doing that? Nobody's forcing you to do that. Why are you putting yourself through that? Hopefully it's because we've learned, we've come to recognize the difference between jumping out of that frying pan and into the fire, right? And staying in, even though nobody but ourselves and our God are asking us to do that. We don't want to hear escape, assimilate. We don't escape through assimilation. We just postpone that destruction and increase its extent. This is James chapter 1, verse 13. It says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That's James 1, 13 through 16. He says, do not be deceived. Even though you can't always see the consequences of assimilation, they always bring forth death. You're being tempted to get out of the fire that's purging, to get out of that fire that's purifying, to get out of that fire that is making you into the the man or the woman that God intends for you to be. You're, You're being tempted to assimilate, jump out of that frying pan, right? And everything's gonna get better, but that's not the case. That temptation leads to sin. And that sin grows into death every single time. Sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it happens over years and decades. But it's always the same. 
assimilation. Daniel said he purposed in his heart not to assimilate. He made a decision that even though it was probably going to get hotter and it was going to get harder, that he was not just going to assimilate. He knew where that would lead him. So let's move on. How many of you know the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Initially, we might say not too many, but all of you should know that story. Not only did we just talk about it here a couple weeks ago, but it's one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Because Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 7 says that when the Israelites were taken captive, some were chosen to serve this foreign god, this foreign king. And it says, to them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So all their names were changed. A big part of assimilation is about changing your name and changing your identity. Right? This king, this ruler, understood that if we want to change these people, if we want them to be more like us, we have to change their names, we have to change their identity, right? And who did he choose? He said he wanted young ones with leadership qualities, and then they tried to change their name, change the food they ate, and change the language that they spoke. Get them while they're young, change everything that they know, right? Verse 4 says, they wanted those who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans, right? If the enemy can change our identity, right? Start with our name, but then move on from there, right? Oh, it's just the food that you eat. It's just the language you speak. It's just the God you serve. Worship is worship, isn't it? See, today we're looking at Daniel, but we saw the same thing with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, right? They purposed in their hearts not to assimilate, not to take the easy way out by worshiping someone other than God, other than Yahweh. This identity change, this name change, I think is really significant when it comes to assimilation. It sounds weird if I call them Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Sounds like there's kind of something wrong with me, right? But if you think about it, shouldn't the problem be with those that call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That's not their real name. That's not their real identity. That's their assimilated name and their assimilated identity. And even those who are believers, we call them by those names. And that's how we recognize them. We recognize them as assimilated instead of those who have stood firm. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. In John chapter 1, verse 42, it says, Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So why is this important? We look at Jesus and he says, Listen, I chose you. You didn't choose me. You weren't walking around looking for me. I was looking for you and I chose you. And then in one of those that he chose, he's talking about Simon, the son of Jonah. He, he calls him, he chooses him, and then he says, your name is now going to be Cephas. Your name is going to be Peter. Your name is going to be Rock. Jesus chooses us, and then he begins to show us who we truly are. Right? 
Peter's name before, right, Simon, it had this connotation of being unfaithful, unreliable, and weak. Jesus chooses him and he says, listen, that is not your real identity. That is not the truth about you. The truth is you are going to be known as strong. You are going to be known as faithful. You are going to be known as dependable. And he lifts up that identity. It's this, this same idea that that was always in Peter, right? But he needed Jesus to reveal to him who he really is and to purge him of all those lies. And how does that come through? You read through the story of the gospel. It comes through many, many fires that Peter had to go through. It doesn't just happen. Those things had to be purged out of him and burned out of him. He had to have failures that were turned into victories. Jesus says, I chose you. I know exactly who you are. I know the number of hairs on your head. And I want you to know your true identity. I don't want you to, to assimilate into something further away from whom you're supposed to be. I want you to realize who you are in Christ. He puts our names and our identities to a fire. He purges away all the lies that we've accepted through assimilation, right? So if you think about your name, it's probably much like my name. Go back to uh, all the different stages of your life. Uh, I don't know how far that is for everybody, but let's, let's say uh, elementary school. What did your name mean? High school, what did your name mean? College, early adulthood, Go through all those stages and think about what was the, the connotation. If somebody said your name, what were the types of things that would be thrown out about you, right? For many of us, there were probably a lot of years where we would have gladly taken a new name to go along with our assimilation, right? We weren't living for the Lord, so we were already assimilating to the way that the world wanted us to live. But you still had your name. So whatever, whatever you were doing in that assimilation, people would recognize you as that. I would have gladly had my name changed so that I didn't have to carry all that baggage from, from uh, season to season. I remember my name uh, when I was younger. Uh, it could have easily been the, the abandoned one, right? I remember uh, watching my family fall apart in many ways. I remember other kids having a dad that was around and for a season mine was not. Marriages that were strong and mine was not. I could easily be identified that way. Seasons where I was Vaughn the addict, Vaughn the liar, Vaughn the selfish one, Vaughn the dropout, Vaughn the unfaithful one. Every single season has all these things that come along with our name, just like Simon the weak, Simon the unreliable, Simon the unfaithful, right? But what about now? You, you come to the Lord and he begins to say, instead of saying, uh, Vaughn, I'm just going to change your name and we're going to pretend like that didn't exist. No, he says, I'm going to actually put you to a fire. It's going to be worse in many cases than it was before. I'm going to light a fire under all those other names that you have carried around till there's just Vaughn, the son of God left. Until there's just Vaughn, the one that I created that's left. You become Vaughn the Forgiven. And then later on, you become uh, Vaughn the Husband. Then you become Vaughn the Father. Vaughn the Hopeful. Right? Vaughn the Dependable. It's the same thing for you and I, but that only comes through staying in the fire. 
There were so many times along that way, especially when I first met Jesus, where the enemy was tempting me in so many ways to just jump out. The fire's too hot. It's not worth it to go through everything you're going to have to go through to have all that stuff purged out of you. And here's the, here's the kicker. Even at the end of all that, or once you get a certain way along, people are still going to look at you the same way they did before. Assimilation is dangerous. It's so tempting. So what's our weapon against it? Right? If I'm hoping that assimilation gets uh, burned out of us through this fire, if I'm hoping that assimilation gets purged out of us and that we begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us, that these things are purified in our lives, what is the weapon that we have against that enemy? What is the weapon we have against assimilation? Right? To encourage us to stay in the fire. Let's look at Daniel. Back in verse 12 and verse 13, Daniel says this when he's asked to assimilate. He says, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Our weapon against assimilation is confidence in our confession, right? It's so easy to assimilate and if you want to keep from assimilating, if you want to fight against the tendency that I have and that you have to just say, it's going to be too hard to stay in the fire. Let me jump out and assimilate. What do you want me to eat? What language do you want me to speak? How do you want me to act? What, what can I do to assimilate? If you want a weapon against that, you have to have confidence in your confession. Daniel says, I know that after 10 days of eating what the Lord has told me to eat, I will be strong and I will be healthy. You could, you could see the confidence, you could feel the confidence, right? He says, listen, I'm not worried. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. I'm not uh, wavering or doubtful. I am 100% certain that if you give me 10 days to do what the Lord has told me to do, and you put me up against somebody after 10 days that is doing what the king of this land has told them to do, I'm confident that I will be victorious right why could daniel be so confident because he had already tested the confession that he was making it wasn't something new that he was just starting to live a certain way to eat a certain way before he became a prisoner when he was free he belonged to the lord and he did the things that the lord had taught him and told him to do and he saw the benefits of it so now that he finds himself in a tough situation, in a difficult situation, he doesn't have a lot of changing to do. He just keeps behaving the same way that he was before, and he has confidence that it's going to continue to work, even though his outside circumstances have changed. I thought about it. How many of us, our lives are dramatically different because of this fire of the coronavirus? When the testimony should be that our lives are strikingly similar because we were living in a particular way before the fire, and it hasn't changed much now that the fire has arrived. I have a, a neighbor. I love him. He's my, my, my next door neighbor, neighbor Dave. And Dave's retired. He's a veteran. And Dave spends his days just taking care of the neighborhood. For a while, I would say that he was more um, um, 
secluded and, and didn't engage much, but he went through some things a few years back, and now he literally mows the lawns of about five people on our block. Does it for free. That's what he does and just gets up every morning and, and he goes out and does these things. And he even used to do ours for a long time, but I let our crazy grass so much that he actually got hurt <laughs> trying to mow it. And I said, look, Dave, I'll take care of that. But anyhow, Dave's life has not changed because of the coronavirus. He's the same as he was before. I still see him mowing the lawns. He still talks to us. We still engage one another. There was not this dramatic change that had to take place in his life because coronavirus fire has descended upon the world. And it's the same thing for Daniel. He'd already tested the Lord. He knew why he was being asked to do certain things. He saw the benefits. So when the fire came, he said, I'm just going to continue to do what I've been doing. He had confidence in his confession because he had already tested it. This is Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Right? So this is from a couple weeks ago, but we can see the confidence of their confession. Again, the king is saying, if you don't do what I want you to do, if you don't assimilate, if you don't worship when I tell you to worship and how I tell you to worship, I'm going to put you in a furnace and I'm going to kill you. And what is their, their, their response? Their response is not to assimilate and say, you're right. How do you want me to worship? When do you want me to worship? How should I bow down to you? How can I deny my God? No, they don't do that. They have confidence in their confession. They say, listen, we don't even really need to engage you on this, but we will. Our God is faithful and capable. He will deliver us. How can they say that? How do they have confidence in that confession? Because they've seen their God deliver before. And just because they're in a new fire, they don't assimilate and change. They say, our God is going to do this time what we've tested him and known him faithful to do in the past. And then you see the level of their faith and confidence. They say, listen, and if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship you. Because if he chooses not to, it's not because he can't. He chooses not to, obviously, because it's the best thing for us, even though it may hurt. Amen. If you don't want to assimilate, you have to have tested faith. You have to have confidence in your confession. Or you will assimilate over and over and over again. I will assimilate over and over and over again. If we never take a stand for our faith in our place of work, we will continue to assimilate job after job after job. If we never take a stand for our marriages amongst friends and family that may not agree with whatever decision that we've made, we will assimilate and bow down to them again and again and again. If we never take a stance with our kids as parents and say, no, you will not do this. I don't care who else is TikToking. <laughs> then you're going to assimilate again and again and again. You have to actually test your faith and see that God is good. That's the only weapon we have. Faith in our confession, confidence in our confession, not just because we say we hope this works, but because we've seen his promises endure. When I go for uh, Mary's car, I buy the same tires, same brand, same shop. Why? Because they've lasted longer than any other tires that we've bought. And the service has been great every time we go to that spot. 
They tell you that they're going to change the tires and rotate them and fix anything that's wrong with them for free. And the times that we've gone there to have that done, guess what? They've actually done it. So the tires last longer than they even say they're going to last. They say 30,000 miles and they go for 40,000. And then they promised us that they would take care of us if we have any problems. And they do that. So I continue to go back to them. It's the same thing with the Lord. Have you tested him to see if his promises have endured? Has he done the things that he promised to do? Those tires get tested when things are great. We're just driving around. They get tested more so, though, in the rain, when the roads are wet, when it's dangerous out. It's the same thing with our faith. We see God all the time, and it's great when we can come in and just worship, but everybody's got jobs, everybody's got resources, everybody's in love. They come into church holding hands and giving each other kisses, right? That's the time that it's like, it's so good to be a Christian. But the testing is when she don't like you, you don't like her, the kids aren't listening, you lost your job, everybody's mad at everybody. That's the time where your faith is actually tested to see if it holds true. Will the Lord deliver us? The Lord said that uh, the two have become one. Is, is, is he going to hold that? Is that going to be true? Because it don't feel like it right now. Are we going to be able to make it through this together? Man, if we don't jump out of the frying pan and into the fire, if we don't jump out of the fire and into assimilation, we end up like Daniel, confident in our confession and refusing to assimilate. Right. So here, we're hoping to lose assimilation in this fire. And I said we're hoping to gain, as we come out of this fire, real hope and reality. All right. So first, let's look at the reality. This testing and fire that we're going through is cyclical. Right. Coronavirus is not the first fire, and it's not the last fire. It's one of many fires that come in cycles through our lives. This one is a big one. It feels big because it's global. Everybody is this fire. And it feels like, hey, we're all together in it, right? But here's the truth. Before 2020 is over, many of us are going to go through personal fires, at least one, two, maybe three or four. There's the global fire of the coronavirus, but then there's the personal fires that each of us are gonna have to endure. They come in cycles, right? Just like the seasons come and go, fires come and go. We saw that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were literally thrown into a personal fire. It was not a global one. Everybody else was assimilating and doing what was expected of them to do and living a certain way in that kingdom And the only ones that were in a fire, it was a personal fire for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. For you and I, it's going to be the same thing. There's a global coronavirus fire, but then there's going to be these personal fires that we're asked to endure. Let's see what happens to Daniel later on. He takes this stand. He says, I'm not going to eat that. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to assimilate. He purposes in his heart not to assimilate. But let's see if these fires are cyclical. Let's see if that's the reality. 
This is Daniel chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verse 1. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Stop there real quick at verse four. So Daniel starts off the the children of israel are taken captive they are slaves to uh, nebuchadnezzar right they're going to be trained up for three years so that they can just serve the king in particular ways he takes this stand of faith he will not assimilate he says i'm not going to eat that i'm not going to drink that and what ends up happening is that even in captivity the lord raises him up to be a man of authority and a man of honor within this foreign kingdom So here he is, and he just keeps getting elevated and elevated and elevated, even in the world, as a man of faith, it says, to the point where everybody's hating on him and saying, we've got to find a way to get him out of authority and get him out of power. They're trying to find some way, and they can't find anything. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. You hear the assimilation? King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, we've consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or any man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in to the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, and was his, as was his custom since early days. Stop there again, verse 10, before we go on to verse 11. Daniel knows that this decree has been signed, that for 30 days he's not allowed to worship his God according to the nation that he lives in and that he's a leader in. And what does it say? It says that he went up into his room, not once, not twice, but three times, as was his custom. He praised the Lord. Why? He was not going to assimilate again, just like he didn't assimilate before. He was going to be firm and confident in his confession now, just like he was before. It doesn't matter that he has more to lose now than he did before. He's still the same man that loves the same God as he did before. Hmm. Verse 11. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and they spoke concerning the king's decree. 
Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statue which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Stop there again, verse 16. This idea of the law of the Medes and the Persians does not change and that it's binding on this king, that he is the king and he still says, if I wrote it into law, the law doesn't change. I was talking with, with my family and my kids yesterday, matter of fact. We were reading through uh, Romans chapter 3 and I just started asking them questions if they understood this, if they understood that. And we started talking about the law. And the question came up about why do we have the law? Why should we have to follow the laws? And, and my kids were good little Christians and said, because it comes from God and so on and so forth. And I said, well, what about the laws of the land? I said, right now with the coronavirus, depending on what state you live in, the laws are different. Here, we got to wear masks. In another state, you don't have to wear masks. I told him, if you drive a couple hours south to the border, right? There's things that you can do at, at uh, 18 on one side of that border that you would have to wait till you're 21 on this side of the border to do. The laws change based on who's governing. The laws change based on where you are geographically. I said, so what is it about, about God's laws that are supposed to somehow be different? You look at something like this, where the king himself says, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, and I can't change, it's binding to me. And in another region, these laws would be nothing. We talked about how God's law supersedes all of these borders, and it supersedes all of these governors, and it supersedes all of these uh, presidents. Most of us know much more about our local laws than we do about the law of God. These enemies knew that the only way to get Daniel is to try to get him to break God's law. He wasn't going to break God's law, but he was definitely going to break this king's law. I wonder how many people could say that about you and I. This is a man that is going to do what God has called them to do. This is a woman that is going to do what God has called her to do. Even if it goes against what this company says, what this state says, what this nation says. It's a delicate balance, but man, they knew what kind of man Daniel was. Kind of man that we should want to be as men and as women of God. Amen. So verse 16, the king gave the command. They brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke to Daniel your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring 
and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Verse 18. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning, and he went in haste to the den of the lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, has he been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, king, I have done no wrong before you. Then the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of the lions. Them, their children and their wives and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree in every dominion of my kingdom. Men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the region of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So good. Isn't it crazy how King Darius makes a more clear profession of God than many Christians do, just like King Nebuchadnezzar did earlier? We saw this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how their persecutors were actually burned by the fire that they were trying to throw them into. And we see it again here. Daniel is persecuted, and instead of him being the one to suffer, his persecutors are the ones that suffer. So good, but I don't have time to go into all that. What I want to focus on, we're going to bring this to a close, is verse 16 and 17. The king gave the command. They brought Daniel, cast him into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he'll deliver you. But then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Why is this important? Because King Darius is just like Pilate, right? Pilate did not want to crucify Jesus. When he actually met Jesus and had a chance to talk to him and interrogate him, he said, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Matter of fact, I want to, I want to ask him some question. What is truth? What do you mean that, that the authority I have only comes to me because of your father? He says that if I find nothing wrong with this man. I don't want to crucify him. You guys do it. Darius is the same way. He, it says that he got mad at himself and he says, how could I have done this? I signed this into law. Now I have to go through with it. But at the end, what happens? Pilate crucifies Jesus. And Darius puts Daniel in the lion's den. See, both of these men had assimilated. They did what the people wanted them to do. They did what the culture expected them to do. 
They signed a piece of paper that said this is the law of the Medes and the Persians and now I just got to, it doesn't matter that it's wrong. It doesn't matter that I don't even want to do it. I'm compelled to do it because I've assimilated to this culture. I want to keep my authority. I want to be seen in a certain light. The only king, the only authority that we can put our trust in is Jesus. He's the only one that will always do the right thing. (laughs) He's the only one that never chooses to assimilate. He'd rather die on a cross than assimilate. And his followers would rather be thrown into a fiery furnace (laughs) or thrown into a lion's den than to assimilate. That's the one that we put our trust into. Not the pilot that lives in your life. Not the King Darius that runs your state, your nation, your job. We can't put our trust in him because you know what's going to happen when the rubber meets the road, when you're standing on your faith, when you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, they may still choose to assimilate and you'll be the one to suffer. So finally, let's look at the real hope. We said, what's going to be burned? Assimilation. What's the reality? That these fires are cyclical. They're going to keep coming. There's more to come in 2020. And guess what? If the Lord don't come back and you live till 2021, there's going to be some fires for you to go through then too. So where's the real hope? Where's the real king we can trust to be righteous rather than assimilating? Verse 22 says, Daniel says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me. Why? Because I was found innocent before him. So good. (laughs) Where's the real hope in this fire? Where's the real hope in my life? Where's the real hope in your life? Our real hope is in righteousness. It's the righteousness of God that delivers the innocent, right? That's where we find real hope in whatever situation you're going through, the global fire of the coronavirus, the local and personal fire of whatever your situation or circumstance is. Where is the hope? The real hope is in the righteousness of God who delivers the innocent. Daniel says, God, the God I serve, he sent his angel. His angel fought for me, closed the mouths of the lions so that they didn't hurt me. Why? Because I was found innocent. So here's the struggle. The rest of that Bible study I was telling you about with my family, we started talking about uh, in Romans chapter 3, again, this idea of the law and, and who's found guilty and who's not found guilty. This idea of innocence. And we spent probably an hour talking about how all of us are guilty, right? So how is there real hope in God delivering the innocent if we know we're not innocent? Because innocence can be imputed to us through faith. We can be found innocent. We can be found righteous through faith in God, through faith in Christ. Last scripture I want to share with you is Philippians chapter 3. I think we've talked about it several times throughout this series. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. And Paul says this, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. It's almost like when you hear Philippians 3, 8, and 9, and you hear Paul talking about it, you could almost see Daniel saying the exact same thing, right? Daniel says, listen, everything I have, I counted as loss. I came here as a slave, and they chose me to, uh, to be trained up for leadership. Praise the Lord. I went through leadership. I lived through multiple kings. I've advanced and advanced and advanced. I have a position of authority. But if you're going to ask me right now to choose between everything I've gained, even in this land, or being able to pray to the one true God, I count everything as loss. I'm going to pray to God, and I'm going to find myself in the lion's den. Daniel says what Paul says. I count it all loss. Why? For God. And then Paul says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul says, listen, I am going to be saved and delivered, just like Daniel was. <laughs> and it's not because I deserve it. It's not because I read enough. It's not because I've learned the laws that God has said that I must keep and that I keep them faithfully. God says there is none righteous. No, not one. We can't do it. We already know that. <laughs> what Paul is saying is, when I put my faith in Jesus, his righteousness is actually imputed or covers me, and my sin is put upon him and dealt with on the cross. Last week, we talked about gaining this uh, understanding and value and faith and trust in the gospel and we just can't get away from it because that's the same thing that Paul is saying here my deliverance what keeps me from assimilating is the gospel believing that the righteousness of Christ is mine when I put my faith in him and I'm known as innocent when I come before God and therefore he saves and delivers me hmm Jesus is our only hope. He's our lasting hope, and he's the only hope that endures. In every single situation, we can keep from assimilating if we understand this. If we test it over and over and over again, and I promise you, he never fails. Sometimes it feels like he's failed. Sometimes it feels like this fire is lasting longer than we expected. Some people are going through the coronavirus fire right now, and they're seeing their loved ones actually physically die. And it may feel like God has somehow failed, but he hasn't. <laughs> Those people, if they died in faith, the scriptures say they breathe their last breath, and the next one, they're standing before their Savior. You tell me that he's not faithful let's pray hallelujah lord so first i just want to pray lord for those that are not covered by your blood yet those who have not received beauty for ashes forgiveness for sin righteousness for unrighteousness lord it's not by the law it's not by behaving a certain way 
It's not by doing certain things and not doing other things. We're saved when the Holy Spirit comes and reveals to us who you are, Jesus, what you did on the cross, the plan that you put in place to save us, to forgive us, to cover us with righteousness, Lord. Nobody else could do it. We can't save ourselves. We don't have enough righteousness in us to save anyone else, Lord, but you are full of holiness. You are full of righteousness. You are the sinless one. Scriptures tell us that you were tempted the same way that we are tempted, yet without sin. Because you're infinite, you have the resources, Lord, to pay the debt that everyone owes because of sin. And because you are 100% man, you can actually stand in our place and take our judgment upon you. All the mysteries of God, the mind of God, the love of God, so far beyond what we can even think of. But we're grateful that you are who you are. If you're here right now, if you're listening right now, and you just feel that you'd like to know that Savior, that you'd like to test for yourself to see if it's true, if your guilt can be dealt with, if your shame can be dealt with, if you can be forgiven, if you can take all of the assimilation of all of your life and have it washed away and be left with the core of who God created you to be. Oh, I pray that you would test him today to see if your name could mean something different. To see if you could go from sinner to saint, from filthy to clean, from desperate to confident and hopeful. This is what he offers. This is what he promises. This is why he came and died on the cross. This is why we have the evidence of the resurrection to prove to us that it's true. And finally, he says that he will send his spirit as a guarantee to his faithfulness. All you've got to do is test him. All you've got to do is surrender. All you've got to do is acknowledge what you already know, which is what I already knew, is that I'm a sinner. And there's not enough time in the world to make up for what I've done. If that's you, I just want to pray with you. And you can repeat after me out loud or you can do so in your heart. I am a sinner. But I believe, Jesus, that you can save me. I believe that the only real hope is in forgiveness. There's no hope in fixing. There's no hope in making up for what I've done. I've got to be forgiven or there is no hope. Jesus, please forgive me. Thank you for taking my sins upon you. And thank you for laying your righteousness upon me. Lord God, I promise to love you with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength from this day forward. Help me 
to fight against assimilation and to live by faith. Lord, I thank you for each and every one. I thank you for my salvation, the salvations that have come before and those that have come today, Lord. Help each and every one of us, Lord. I pray that all of us would be able to fight against assimilation, that we would be able to do so because we have confidence in our confession. I pray that we would be the type of people that come through this fire and out of this fire with confidence in our confession, Lord God, that we would test you and find you faithful time and time again, that we would see these fires as opportunities for purging, opportunities for transformation and change in our lives, Lord, opportunities for purification, Lord, that we would not jump out of the frying pan and into the fire, Lord. We know why the enemy has tempted us. We know where that road leads, Lord God. We've been down that road before, Lord. Strengthen us not to go down it again, God. Oh, how we need you. Oh, how we love you, Lord God. Mm. Lord, I pray that you would call each and every one of us by name today, tonight, over the next few days, Lord God, that we would hear you the same way that you spoke to Peter and you told him now your name is going to mean strength, dependability, rock, stable, Lord God. Lord, prophesy over each and every one of us about who we really are, who we're becoming, the work that you are doing in our lives, where you're taking us, what that means for us, what that means for our families, Lord, what that means for the world around us, God. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would hear your voice louder than any other. Give us the strength and the faith of Daniel, Lord God. Give us that confidence, like Paul, to risk everything and to count it all as lost for you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. So now as we close, I'm just going to uh, receive communion. Got some encouragement to do that with you guys rather than uh, solo. So I've got some here I'm going to grab and just lead us through a prayer. If you've got yours, you can grab it. And if you need more time, go ahead and do this with your family. And maybe don't wait till uh, next Sunday every time you break bread. Remember the Lord. So Jesus, we receive this bread as your body broken for us. We receive this juice as your blood that is shed for us. You told your followers to do this in remembrance of you, Lord. So that's what we do this morning. We remember that it's because of your broken body and your shed blood that I'm covered in righteousness. It's not because of who I am or anything that I've done. It's because you loved me and you called me before I even knew who you were. You died for me. You knew my sins, past, present, and future. You've paid the price for all of them. And I'm confident in you. I'm not confident in me, Lord God. Lord, strengthen. Strengthen us. Strengthen me, Lord God. Not to be one who assimilates. But one who remains faithful in the face of adversity. To keep praying. To keep having communion to keep having Sabbath, 
to stay in my word, Lord, to pray, to gather, to proclaim your name and your gospel. We love you. We thank you. We do this in remembrance of you, Jesus. Amen. So God bless you. We love you guys. Can't wait to see you again, to gather again, whether it's via social media (laughs) or back in a building together in homes again. Man, we've got a hope for what's ahead of us. God bless you. Not easy.